at 16 years old and 5 feet 7 inches tall. He wasn't a large presence when he first arrived at UCLA as a freshman in the fall of 1942. But today, his name seems larger than life. You see it on buildings all across campus, but you probably don't know much about the man behind that name. The man I'm talking about is Meyer Luskin. A few weeks ago, I had the amazing opportunity to interview Meyer Luskin, and I got to learn his life story. He spoke about growing up in a tenement in New York City and taking a break while at UCLA to fight in World War II. We also talked about his business career and how he had to overcome anti-Semitism. And we discussed his philanthropy at UCLA and the duty he feels to give back to a university that gave him so much. At 98 years old, he had a lot of advice about life and relationships and business. And it was really an honor to be able to meet with him. So here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Mr. Luskin, welcome to Bruin to Bruin. I want to start our conversation at the very beginning. You grew up in New York City in the 1920s and 30s. Can you tell us about what it was like to grow up in New York City at that time? Well, uh, I grew up in New York City in the Lower East Side when it was that Lower East Side that you've seen in moving pictures where you see push carts on the street and people running and running all over and the streets full of people where you had distinct neighborhoods of immigrants and uh, you had an, an area where the Italian immigrants would live and you had an area where the Jews of Eastern Europe uh, would live and uh, there's another area, I guess, where the Irish, but uh, so I was essentially in a area of the Lower East Side, the number of blocks around where the apartment, the tenement in which we lived, uh, were primarily uh, Jews who had immigrate, immigrated from Eastern Europe. And uh, the neighborhood was what you'd call a real rough, tough neighborhood. Uh, I'm not rough and tough. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was... Uh, uh, a fascinating one and totally different from uh, Southern California. My family came to Los Angeles when I was about 15. And we moved because uh, my mother was quite ill. And the doctor told my dad that if he moved to an, a climate such as Southern California, she'd lead a better life and a longer life. And so... Uh, he sold his little plumbing business. He was a plumber, and we moved to Los Angeles. Uh, we moved to East Los Angeles, come, called Boyle Heights. Uh, that's where the poor uh, uh, people would normally start to live in Los Angeles when they came to New York City. And so uh, it was a blessing for me uh, to have moved to Los Angeles because I then led a much different life than I would have had I remained living in the Lower East Side of New York. So how was your life different after moving to Los Angeles? Well, it, it, it was, in New York, I look back, I was confined to a ghetto. My, my think and thought process was very close and inward in the little ghetto, just surviving there. Uh, 
And uh, uh, there are no examples of people doing much other than uh, menial work to survive in the ghetto. Uh, and so the outlook never would have been much. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, whereas somebody in Southern California was open, we, we live in a little home uh, in the Lower East Side. I lived on the first floor of a tenement building, six-story tenement building, tenement buildings all around. And so not only did you get a feeling of an open life coming to Los Angeles at that time, but uh, uh, the whole feeling and atmosphere was one of openness, one of uh, uh, freedom, of light. Uh, it was a totally different world compared to that crowded, hustling, bustling uh, Lower East Side. I'm sure you've seen Los Angeles change a lot over the years. So how is LA different and do you think it still has that spirit of freedom and openness that you felt when you first moved here? Uh, I still think there's a openness, a sense of freedom. You, you look up most places in the city, you'll see a blue sky or a sky anyway. Uh, you'll see the uh, sunshine. Uh, everything is so much low rise as compared to narrow streets, uh, uh, where it's all full of uh, uh, tenement buildings. Uh, so you still get a, an open feeling. Uh, young people feel free to easily go to the beach or go to the mountains or just uh, travel out to the desert. Uh, there's still a, uh, a greater sense of uh, independence, entrepreneurship, freedom, openness, uh, I think, compared to to uh, a, a ghetto area in any type of a city. When you were growing up, what were you interested in? Did you always have an interest in business? No, I was not interested in business at all. Uh, for some reason, uh, as an early childhood of having all sorts of illnesses, uh, I was forced to stay home, family thinking that I shouldn't be running around or having an exercise. Uh, they thought, thought I had the heart problems and rheumatic fever and um, had a heart murmur and all sorts of, had every childhood disease you could think of at that time. And so I did a lot of reading and uh, uh, I went to UCLA thinking I would major, and I did, I majored in history. Uh, I loved history because so many of the books I read while being home as, uh, quote, sick or not fit to be running around uh, in a playground with uh, my contemporaries. And so uh, I really liked reading books about history, particularly European history uh, after the Middle Ages onwards. And you were just 16 when you enrolled at UCLA, is that right? Well, I was cl closer to 17, yes. <laughs> yes I, I had skipped, they had skipped me a few grades earlier and so uh, I entered UCLA uh, in September of 42, and uh, I was not quite 17. And so uh, when I enrolled at UCLA uh, my first semester, uh, when the professor would assign a few paragraphs of some book for reading uh, over the weekend, I'd 
check out two or three books and read all the books about it. I mean, I just, I read it day and night. And so the end of my first semester, that, uh, in those days, UCLA was on a semester system rather than the quarter system. And so uh, the end of my first semester, the professor asked me if I wanted to be a reader. And I said, well, what's a reader? He says, well, you'll read the exams and you can enter a grade based on the, the outline I give to you. If you have any questions, you'll come to me. But uh, I think you're fit to uh, help me read the uh, exams. Uh, it was obvious to him that I was totally immersed in history. What was UCLA like when you were a student here? The fee at that time, there was, there was no tuition fee. At that time, the fee was $29 a semester. So my you family know. was very poor, but we could afford $29. Uh, you bought used books. They were well underlined, but they were inexpensive compared to a, a new book. I commuted from Boyle Heights took streetcars, buses, trolleys, uh, spent at least an hour and a half every morning and afternoon commuting back and forth from Boyle Heights to UCLA. And wow. at that time, UCLA just had four, primarily there was the quad, the library, Royce Hall, and the two buildings on the quad, men's and women's gym, and uh, the student center, uh, that was it. Total of seven buildings. Two of them were the gymnasium, men's and women's gym, and it was quite small. I think the entire student body, including whatever graduate students, was about 7,000. Wow, so it was $29 a semester, and there were 7,000 students. Obviously, very different than today. Um, when you were at UCLA, you took a break to serve in the military. Could you tell us about that? Yes. When I turned uh, 18 in October of 1943, I was in the U.S. Army in November of 1943. And so I completed one year, essentially, and uh, uh, left and went into the Army. I, I actually went into the Army Air Corps which subsequently became the U.S. Air Force. But when I was in it, until near the end, it was the U.S. Army Air Corps. And I served in the invasion of Okinawa. And I came home in April of 40, 1946. And uh, at that time, I had what they call the GI Bill. It was a wonderful piece of legislation granting veterans uh, all sorts of uh, funds for education. And so I completed the next, my three years, but I changed my major. When I was overseas, I was concerned, how would I make a living in history? Uh, my vision was quite narrow and I wasn't sure how I would survive uh, economically because uh, my parents didn't have any money at all. They were quite, uh, quite poor. Uh, they did say to me, however, you can sleep at our little home and we'll share food with you, but we're unable to give you anything else. And so I worked uh, every summer and I had jobs during the uh, time I attended UCLA, uh, the second time from uh, 1946 
through June of uh, 1949. And you mentioned that you changed your major? I changed my major to economics. Yeah, I was getting closer to the mighty, mighty dollar. Uh, and then I realized I didn't know anything upon graduating uh, in, in 1949. And I didn't care to pursue uh, economics because my viewpoint of the basic tenants of economics at that time, I was in disagreement with them. I didn't think they were real. At that time, everything in economics was based upon a rational person always making a rational decision. And I knew from my experiences in life that people made irrational decisions and people were irrational at times. And they did things based upon emotion, not because they were fully rational and thinking. And I couldn't agree with the theories of economics. Everything was based on that ration. Well, 20, 30 years later, 40 years later, uh, they were giving Nobel prizes to economists who had theories about the rationality in economics. So I should have gotten that prize back there in about 1948. I just couldn't accept that concept uh, it didn't make sense to me. And so I applied to uh, the Stanford uh, Business School and I was accepted. And I started in September of uh, 1949 uh, to get an MBA there. I exhausted my GI Bill. And there was also something called a California Veterans Bill that gave you up to $1,000 for tuition, books, or that nature. So when I finally got the MBA at 51, I exhausted all that the government's going to give to me for education. And so I'm forever indebted to the concept of getting an education. Uh, and, and that feeling motivates me towards UCLA or towards a state university where, well, anyway, at that time, you can get a great education for so very little money and allow somebody from a very poor, economically poor, I had a lot of love from my parents. I was rich in, in love and good advice and uh, good principles about life from my parents, but economically, there wasn't uh, any money to be had. And so UCLA gave me that wonderful uh, education and an outlook that I could do something uh, with myself in terms of uh, supporting myself and having a, a decent standard of life. And uh, my philanthropy at UCLA is shaped very much by the concept of having uh, a public institution uh, wherein uh, students of low economic uh, resources can get a great education and help them to a much better life economically. I want to focus now on your extensive philanthropy at UCLA. You already touched on it a little bit, but could you tell us some more about how and why you started donating to UCLA? Well, my first gift, which was significant to me at that time, 
but based upon my good fortune in, in the material world, my first gift was to the UCLA History Department to help some uh, graduate students with fellowships. Uh, and then Winnie and I realized that uh, we had accumulated a lot of money and then our lifestyle didn't call for needing a lot of money. Our, our lifestyle is relatively simple compared to the amount of money that I made. And we said, we don't believe in hierarchies or royalty or special families that can dominate economically. We just don't believe in that. We strongly believe in total democracy and uh, helping people to achieve uh, and making it easy for someone who can uh, be good to, to get somewhere and achieve. Uh, and so we decided to make some major gifts to UCLA. I remember we made that decision sitting around the breakfast table on a Saturday morning. We looked at each other and said, time to give it away. <laughs> and, and we came to the conclusion that science and medicine uh, get so much of the money that's given to universities. Uh, and we felt they were getting enough money and that the social sciences or the other areas of education and life uh, and also should be supported. Uh, and we wanted to do something that would help people right now. Uh, whereas uh, if you try to cure disease, it might take you 10, 20 years or longer and the benefits take a long, long time. We wanted to see some value to what we're doing now. We wanted to enjoy that. And so we thought uh, uh, about the uh, School of Public Affairs, which had a Department of Social Welfare, a Department of Urban and Regional Planning, and a Department of Public Policy. And we knew they didn't get much money. And so uh, part of that first hundred million that we gave to UCLA, uh, uh, half of it went to uh, School of Public Affairs. Uh, and uh, a lot of it goes towards fellowships and scholarships uh, to enable people to attend graduate school who otherwise might not attend. And then we, under the guidance of Chancellor Block, uh, decided to support the building of the uh, Luskin Conference Center. And so uh, the principal recipients, the first major gift was the School of Public Affairs and the uh, Luskin Conference Center. Uh, we thought a, a major conference center on campus would be a great help towards speeding uh, along the acquisition of knowledge. Because before having a conference, a major conference center where people could uh, have breakfast together, <clears throat> attend lectures, 
have drinks afterwards, dinner and sleep in a hotel and all be together. Whereas prior to that, a major conference, they have to get to hotels around the city. Probably they wouldn't meet that, had nowhere to, big place to meet as well afterwards and have dinner and drinks and uh, stay in the same place. But if you put them together longer, they'll make arrangements with each other. They'll uh, arrange to have the joint uh, projects uh, that they will be doing research on together. That'll foster education if, if they're together longer and allows them to, uh, to have joint uh, uh, investigating projects. Uh, and, uh, and so it turns out the conference center became something greater and better uh, than uh, all of us envisioned. And uh, it's, I'm told it's, it's now uh, an important area in the university in terms of gathering people and getting them to work together uh, and encourage meetings and conferences. Oh, and be, before that, uh, we started something that's called the Luskin Center for Innovation. Uh, the idea was to bring the brilliance of the UCLA scholars to help the neighborhood, that is helping the gown to help the town, uh, because normally they're at odds. And we felt if UCLA didn't show the city, the state, how valuable it is to the community, uh, they wouldn't get as much support. And we thought that we would foster that relationship. And what started as a one-person operation uh, has now blossomed into one of the major research groups uh, and uh, for the state of California. And we emphasize the environment. And so the uh, Luskin Center of Innovation is, I don't know how many professors are now uh, working with it and, and students getting um, fellowships to work and all the research projects we've done for the state of California. And uh, it's a large project now and it brings in income for, re for further research. So that idea turned out to be a really excellent one uh, for the people of our state and our community and for the university. Can you talk to us about why you think it's important to study history? Um, we want to study history for the sake of how does it affect our current political situation? What do we learn from different periods of history that will help us make a decision now. As human beings, we tend to repeat uh, our mistakes and problems that we create from the past. As you look at the way the world is now, you see all the horrible things going on, uh, which have been going on for several thousand years now. Uh, we've learned, we've made some progress but we have a hell of a long way to go. Uh, and so if we could learn some more of the mistakes we made and how do we apply it to a problem right now, uh, and the problems can be small ones, it could be major ones, but we're hoping that uh, uh, 
we do some good with our History and Public Policy Center. We have worked and contributed to the scholarship and fellowships for community college students and trying to draw the community college world closer to the uh, UCLA and, and helping those people in community college who want to go on and uh, teach and administer in community college, helping them. And uh, we continue to look for areas at UCLA that we want to support. And so I'm still working. I'm past 98, uh, but I go to the office five days a week. And all that I make goes to philanthropy. Uh, meaning I have enough. Our idea of a great weekend is this, is to sit and read. <laughs> you don't need to have a lot of money to sit and read. I can't ski anymore. I can't play tennis anymore. I did both of those until I was almost 90. Um, and, uh, and so I get fun out of relating to people, having lots of friends at UCLA, and uh, been quite lucky in life. So good fortune, just having good breaks, I think has helped along, plus having good science and medicine. When I was in my late 60s, I had open heart surgery. And if it weren't for that open heart surgery, I probably would have died shortly thereafter. So having good science, good medicine is important as my longevity and enjoyment of life. I've led a sensible and reasonable life almost all the time. <laughs> in my times wasn't so sensible and reasonable. Uh, when I was quite ill and young, uh, the doctor, the doctor I had, this wonderful man, said, "Don't you ever smoke, Meyer? It isn't good for you." So, luckily, I never was a smoker. Whereas so many of my young friends uh, all smoked, and so many of them died of uh, smoking problems in their 50s and 60s and early 70s. Uh, uh, I had a nutritious diet, uh, drank wine every night. I've now just about cut it out, but never to an excess. Got a fair amount of exercise. Didn't overdo it, but just enough to keep reasonably fit so I can enjoy the sports. Uh, I kept in shape so I can have fun and uh, have always had wonderful friends. I thank UCLA for getting me started. And uh, as I say, I'm, in, I'm indebted to the concept of a an excellent uh, public education. Um, out there, and these very, very poor people lurks some kind of a Shakespeare or an Einstein or Lenny Kleinrock. Or Meyer Luskin. Or Meyer Luskin, yes. Go on that, we wouldn't have had that. And so the more Rini and I get into sharing our good fortune, the better it feels. The better I feel about it. The greater joy I have. You reach a level that you try to understand what you need, what you want. Uh, what is 
bad emotion uh, and what's good emotion. And you have to be careful uh, that you make sure the bad emotions don't drive your life or, or leave you without reality. I tell people I've never seen a, her a armored car in a funeral procession. You can't take it with you. So can't take it with you. May as well enjoy giving it away now or doing something with the other, giving it you pleasure, whatever it is. I'm uh, not trying to tell everybody what they should do. Marine, I get particular pleasure trying to help uh, humanity and people. Someone might get pleasure of, of uh, constantly skiing. That's all right. But do something that gives you joy and pleasure. And uh, I think if you mature enough, you start trying to help other people. You mentioned your wife, Rini, a couple times. Can you talk to us about your partnership with Mrs. Luskin? Well, uh, she's past 91. We still love each other very much. Just before we close our eyes in bed, we kiss each other goodnight. Uh, she's a great partner and tries to take care of me, and I try to do the same. It's not that we don't at times have arguments. They're not bad. They're short. They're few now. Uh, she gave up a career to raise children and provide a home for me so I can provide for children. So uh, she was going to get her master's in social welfare and gave that up. Uh, and so we're a partnership. So what I have made in working is um, at least half hers. I call her my better three quarters anyway. Um, both of us see almost most things alike. Uh, I think it's important if two people are going to live together uh, that uh, they have the same values and important concepts. Uh, I cannot imagine two people having a long life together if their values are, are significantly different. The only time we really had serious disagreements was about raising the children. And uh, I look back and she was right most of the time and I was wrong. Uh, but uh, I was tended to be much harder and tougher. Uh, shouldn't have been that much. I thought in order to toughen up for this tough world um, that I would do things I thought to make them stronger. But at times that backfired as I look back now. Um, but as far as the two of us, that was really only serious disagreements. Uh, and uh, we still have so much of the same values about so many aspects of life. Most important, the basic values of what you believe in. Your, your levels of integrity, uh, your levels of honesty, your your feelings about other people. And uh, so that's, that's important. We have those same values. And uh, we try to help and take care of one another. 
particularly if we feel that the other has having a little problem. That's when the great feeling of love comes out uh, and the great concern comes out and the willingness to do anything to help the other one. And she and I agree on our gifts and what, what we do. You both won the UCLA medal in 2019. Could you tell us about what it was like to win that award? Well, when you realize I was this not quite 17 year, almost 17 year old coming from Boyle Heights by way of all sorts of public transportation amongst, uh, and I'm not a, and I was on a short side. I was then 5'7", I'm now 5'4", I've lost well, almost probably less, lost three, four inches. Uh, but when you realize I was still that uh, very naive, uh, uh, insecure in some ways, you know, entering UCLA uh, at that time, uh, and then th and then thinking about getting the the UCLA accolade, uh, it didn't seem like it was it was me. You know, it doesn't make, make sense. I mean, how do I get there? I mean, that's, and uh, in fact, the whole, towards these last many years, the whole voyage doesn't seem to make any sense, considering being in those little streets in the Lower East Side uh, in that ghetto area. Um, and so, longevity, luck, and America. I mean, it wouldn't, what happened to me wouldn't happen in almost any place. I, you know, from, from, from the area we were economically to where we're at now and all the other aspects of it would not have happened if it weren't for this being in this country. And so my parents raised me with a great love for this country because it gave them an opportunity. Uh, they were both immigrants from Eastern Europe. Uh, they had no education. They were bright people. They were really bright. They quickly learned to read and write English and became citizens very quickly. So they had to be bright without any uh, education to do that. Uh, and uh, they were forever grateful what this country afforded them. And that was passed on to the children. But I then became particularly strong for me as I realized what I had here as compared to what I would have had being raised in a little shtetl in Eastern Europe. Uh, so when I went off in World War II, I realized I would lose my life. I could lose my life. And I accepted it. I accepted that was an obligation that I had to the country in a horrible war. Uh, that if we lost, it would have been a horror for everybody, particularly uh, being a Jew. And I use that word in a strange way because I guess culturally I'm that, but uh, I don't particularly follow the religion. I uh, am not a person of, of faith but uh, deeply believe 
in the sense of democracy for all. Uh, Rini shares those feelings totally and completely. Um, I was exceptionally lucky in, get, in her accepting me and marrying her. So I really lucked out. I want to transition now to your career in business. You've had a very long and successful career. Can you tell us about how you first got started? Well, uh, at Stanford, I decided I, uh, I wanted to become an investment counselor. Uh, and, and, uh, and so when I graduated, I came back down to Los Angeles because uh, my mother was quite ill and I wanted to be near her, thinking that she didn't have a lot of years. And I was correct. Uh, she passed away two years after I returned. And I'm forever grateful I decided to come back to Los Angeles rather than living in the Bay Area. Uh, and so uh, I tried to get a job. And there are very few investment counseling firms, uh, and they wouldn't hire me. Later on, I learned why. Uh, and then I applied to uh, stockbrokerage firms. Rather than being a counselor, I said, well, I'll, I'll step down and try to become a stockbroker and help and do my research and and help people and make a good living that way. Uh, and so I couldn't get a job with the major brokerage firms. I didn't know why until I had one interview uh, and the, the partner of this major firm said, I really like you and God, you, you served your country well, got decent grades at school, you got an MBA, but I cannot hire you. And I said, well, why not? I, he says, don't you understand? And I looked at him, I said, I don't understand. And he looked at me and said, because you're Jewish and you could have knocked me down with a feather because I thought those days were over. I thought this is, this is the United States of America and here I am uh, with, uh, and he said, but I could get you a job as a, uh, a messenger boy, uh, as a runner for a small brokerage firm and maybe you can work your way in, but they need somebody to deliver packages and envelopes uh, I could have gotten a job at, then with my friends at about $550 to $600 a month. I accepted being a runner at $125 a month just so I could get started. I was willing to do anything to get started. So my advice to people, if you think you love something, you want to do something, don't look at what the starting pay is. Get involved, get started, uh, do what you have to in those days where you can subsist on very little and have lots of energy and desire. Uh, in the beginning, follow your love and desire. And then if it doesn't work, well, you can change. But in the beginning, don't let any, any not having these perks or whatever it is, stop you. Go to work on what you love. So uh, I would then show up before seven o'clock and start delivering their between the different brokerage firms on Spring Street in Los Angeles. And then I would, in the afternoon, go into different stores downtown Los Angeles, introduce myself and tell them I work for a stock brokerage firm. And four out of five people would throw me out of the store because the concept of 1929, the Great Depression, this was uh, uh, so prevalent in their mind. They still, you know, this, uh, this was 1950. One, two, three, and but I started convincing people to let me 
invest some money for them. I did my own research. I didn't depend upon anybody. I learned how to do research in the classical way at, uh, when I got my uh, MBA. And I started building this clientele slowly. Uh, and by the end of about the second or third year working with this little firm, they only had a few salespeople, somewhere between seven and 10 people. I was now number one. Uh, after another year, I was recruited by a New York brokerage firm that was moving to Los Angeles uh, to join them in Beverly Hills. So I moved from downtown, this very small uh, firm, not a member of the New York Stock Exchange, to a national firm. Uh, and uh, I did very well. In uh, about 70 people, I'd be ranked one or two from the top. Uh, didn't lose any customers. I did my research. All my customers were small to medium-sized people. I didn't know anybody of any money. Uh, oh, let me be fair. I went, I went, there was one at that time Jewish investment counseling firm, and I applied there, and they didn't accept me either because I came from the wrong side of the tracks. I was a kid from Boyle Heights. So keeping the record straight, uh, they wouldn't hire me either. Uh, I don't make a big impressive impression, this little guy. Uh, it's hard to see into a person's motivation. And when I hire people, the most important thing I look for is motivation. If you really don't want to do something, I don't care how many brains you have, you're not going to be as good for me as the person who's highly motivated, has enough brains to get the job done, doesn't have to be brilliant, uh, because the work I'm in doesn't call for that. If I were hiring a, a, a physicist, I guess I'd want somebody with the best brains. But you still have to have motivation. And boy, was I motivated. Uh, I worked all day, nights, weekends. I then had so much business that I decided I would give up my very good brokerage business and opened my own small one-man investment counseling uh, because then there would be no conflict of interest. When you're a broker, you get a commission when somebody buys or sells. And if I advise you to buy or sell, I get a commission. And if you're my good friend or a good client, and I'm going to advise you to do something because I'm going to make money, I'm screwing you. I'm abusing you. And... Uh, and I had, and I was getting to a point uh, of trying to be certain that my advice was always for the best of the client, uh, and not because of a commission. And the only way to do that was to eliminate commissions. So I gave up an excellent practice in Beverly Hills and started a small one-person firm in Beverly Hills as an investment counselor, wherein I would get a percentage of the client's portfolio. I get one quarter, one percent. So if the client's portfolio did well, I did better. If it went down, I made less. No conflict of interest in advice. There was one investment I had which wasn't doing well. Uh, I decided to give up my investment counseling business and uh, uh, take over and run this company, which was insolvent a step or two away from being bankrupt or insolvent. 
they had uh, a drilling contract drilling business. That is, in contract drilling in the oil industry, it means you own the equipment, you own the drilling rig, you have the people who are qualified and know how to drill, but you don't own the lease or the land or anything. You're you're a hired contractor. And so this company was essentially a contractor. And we had rigs in Libya and California and few in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, we were greatly in debt. And the first thing I had to do was go to Libya. At that time, they were highly unfriendly to anybody who might have the word Jew associated with them. Uh, I was able to enter the country. Uh, on the entry document, I, word, I wrote the word protest. Obviously, they thought I was Protestant. And I visited our rigs, spent a couple of weeks there, uh, came to the decision that we should leave and sell and get out because a Libyan whom I befriended, whereas our Americans wouldn't talk much to the Libyans because they called them ragheads and looked down upon them. But this man who was the head of our Libyan labor group that we hired was an intelligent, cultured man who advised me as to the politics and history of Libya and warned me that the old king, King Idris, would die soon and the people that would take over hated the Western countries. So when I came back to the United States, I said, we got to sell our rigs. People in the company thought I was crazy, but I did sell them a couple of years later to a French conglomerate. They ha held them for about a year. Then a guy named Muammar Gaddafi overthrew the king and became a dictator and threw out all the Western uh, oil companies, took over the entire industry, nationalized the industry. And the contractors all went broke because he took over all the equipment and they, we all had, uh, that time would have had a lot of debt. And so being interested in history and, and politics, uh, and I gave a talk to the graduating history department about four or five years ago, the title of my commencement talk to, to the graduating class was How History Saved My Ass. And that was my example, one of my two examples of how important it is to know history and your background, where you came from, what was going on. Because if I wasn't interested, I wouldn't befriend this man. And getting out of Libya in time was a turning point in my life. We wouldn't broke. I say to everybody, one way or another, know your background, know what you're doing, know the background of the business you're in, know the people. Try to learn as much as possible about what is affecting you now because the past does affect us. How did you take this struggling business and turn it into what it is today? When I took over this little company, I started to diversify it through some technique then of using... Uh, the tax code uh, in a legal but clever way, uh, I was able to buy into some little businesses. A beauty school called Marinello School of Beauty. I built that to 18 schools, sold those later. 
had a little rent-a-car business for a while, disagreed with the board of directors of the franchise store, so I left it, and they went broke because of the very reasons I disagreed with them, and got started in 1962 uh, in a our current business, which a recycling of waste food we recycle the waste food into an animal feed ingredient. So we call upon the manufacturers of waste food, the bakeries, snack food plants, pizza, pasta, tortillas, all sorts of foods that are made with some kind of a grain. And we put our equipment in the dock end of that plant wherein they bring the waste that's generated. Every operation generates some waste for various reasons. And we pick up the food waste and bring it to our plant, where we mix it all together and we have a manufacturing process. And the end of the manufacturing process, we have a very fine grain-like product that is highly dense in calories, about 1,700 calories per pound has a fair amount of fat, protein, vitamins and minerals, uh, and is a great ingredient in an animal's diet. So we service the bakeries by removing their waste, which they have to do, must do, and in turn, we make a product out of something that normally would have gone to the landfill. We keep it from going to a landfill and have a the value product for society. Uh, in a short future, we're going to have our own dog food. Some of this product will go into a dog food because it's a highly nutritious product and could make a part of it. So we'll further upcycle. And so uh, I started with one little operation in Southeast Los Angeles. And every time I get enough money, I'd move to another part of the country and build a plant. And so now we have 19 plants. And what do you think has been key to that growth? That's been a slow, gradual growth. No big, dynamic, dramatic thing that goes on in the world of technology. Mine has been very old-fashioned, an old slog. Uh, we have a lot of competitors now because... One of the great things in America is competition. Uh, somebody sees what you're doing and it's good, they're going to do the same thing. So where in the early stages, I had it pretty much to myself. Uh, now I've got substantial competitors and that's fine. Uh, I know how to compete. Uh, and uh, we're still making progress. Uh, completing our last plants right now. So we're still active. I enjoy working. I enjoy the people. I enjoy what I'm doing. It's worthwhile. And above all, I'm really enjoying giving that money I'm making to various good causes. Um, so uh, people say, well, when are you going to retire? And uh, I don't know. Uh, um, I don't feel retiring now. Uh, I'm not sure I feel that way. Um, I, I'm certainly 
losing part of my abilities and memory for names and other small things that I'm uh, forgetting. When I go into a room in a house, I got to remind myself, what am I looking for? Why am I coming in here? Uh, but uh, I still think I'm capable of making uh, the executive decisions that need to be made and to encourage and help our people. And so uh, I continue to work and enjoy it. You've spoken about your knowledge of history and how that's helped inform your business decisions. And you've also talked about the importance of motivation. What other qualities do you think have helped you become successful in business? And what other advice do you have for UCLA students? Well, first of all, trying to think about what you're doing and what needs to be done. You have to take time off and try to realize what am I doing? Why am I doing? What's really going on? Um, I think persistence, tenacity is very important because along the way, uh, I had setbacks, but was able to overcome them and stay at and believe in what I was doing was enough to expand and grow. And uh, uh, so uh, I think being willing to work longer than your competition, that is to work hard. Uh, I'm convinced that using your brain makes it better and stronger. This, um, I'm just convinced that uh, in a way it's like a muscle. If you continue to use it um, and, and try to think, uh, it, it'll do it for you. Um, and you train it, you train your brain to want to think, to, uh, to try to stop and think. Um, and it has to go on all the time. Then I think what's important is to understand when your emotions are operating. So you can do things logically, reasonably, sensibly, without being driven by an emotion that isn't good at that point. I say to some of the young friends, getting knocked down is not a sin. Not getting up and trying again is a sin. So you're going to have setbacks and that shouldn't determine the end result. Of course, one has to be realistic and if something definitely after a while shows you that that's not for you, well, then you have to change. Which leads me to you have to be flexible in what you're doing and acting and the different ways you do things. There's more than one way of approaching a problem. There's more than one way of resolving a problem. Um, I think trying to be ethical and moral with your people, being honest, uh, is very important. I know people make a lot of money and they're not ethical or moral. You can make a lot of money not being ethical or moral, but I know you're going to get a hell of a lot more pleasure out of what you're doing if you're doing it in the right and proper way. You're going to feel good about yourself. Which leads me to my philosophy that the important thing for you in life is to learn how to be good to yourself, how you should feel good, which then means what are your, uh, what makes you feel good? Uh, and, in, and so in going back to the ideas about work, 
you're able to work well and long if you feel good about what you're doing. It all ties together. Uh, you know, we are both, in a way, simple animals and then highly complex, highly complicated animals. Human beings are so complex and complicated, and yet there are aspects of us and things that are very simple. So you got to realize both. Um, most of our emotions are really simple, primitive emotions. But then it can get translated into very complex, devious, good, and all sorts of things. It's nice if you know where you're at, because that'll help you achieve something you want to do, if you do have a goal. Um, I never particularly had a, a goal. I just wanted to do well and do as much as I can do um, and tackle the problems and the ends that I saw, sort of interim goals. But I never said, uh, as for some people, which is right to say, I would like to be an MD. Well, that's a good goal, and that's a goal. And for some people, that's right. But it doesn't have to be there for you. Students who might listen to me or you or something should not feel badly if they don't have some big goal in mind. You can have things you want to accomplish and do now, and that'll lead you to other things. It's not bad if you don't have one big goal in mind. Don't feel badly or wrong. It's just fine. That's great advice, especially for seniors like me. Um, yeah, you look, I, I know people who in different fields have done wonderful things, but they didn't have any specific goal. And you've got to get started. So get started and then see what's developing, see what you like. If 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 you're reasonably reasonably lucky or re that you fair breaks, you, what you do in the beginning will have many times no relationship to what you're doing 20, 30, and 40 years later. And you're going to live a long life now. I mean, you, the, the odds are you're going to live into the 80s. So I had a career uh, as a, uh, a stockbroker. I had a career, short career, several years as an investment counselor. And then I changed careers completely and became a businessman. So where you start doesn't mean that's where you end up. Mm. And it's fine, too. Because you may find there's something else that really appeals to you. So feel good about it. Acquire knowledge. Work hard. Work hard and think. Be honest. Enjoy other parts of your life. Not as much as you will later on because you're young and getting started. You're going to spend more time working. But leave time for taking care of yourself physically and mentally. Find a great companion. May not be in the beginning, or may not be for a while, but have some good friends. That's important. Well, Mr. Luskin, um, I have some more questions, but I think we'll call it there. Give me a call and we'll have lunch together. Well, that'd be great. I'll be in touch. Thanks again and have a great rest of your day. Same to you. Bye-bye.